Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Thank you so much. What, what a, a wonderful introduction. I almost didn't recognize. Who is he talking about? <laughs> because you do things and then you, you forget about it because there's always a new challenge up ahead. Well, I'm, I'm extremely honored to have been invited here. Um, I is my first time in UAE, and you have a beautiful campus. Uh, it's a, a remarkable opportunity to influence a very important part of the world and, and, and to bring um, an integrated approach to our thinking, which is what we need as, as a species. We need to have better communication among humans from different parts of the world so we can figure out where are we going and how are we going to get there in a, a decent way without totally disrupting the planet. Well, <clears throat> they say you should be careful giving a microphone to a Jackson because we'll either sing or um, preach. <laughs> but uh, I want to talk to you about uh, genetic anthropology and how we're using the tools of genetic anthropology to, to better understand um, a population we call New World Africans. And New World Africans simply means people of primarily recent African descent who are living in the Americas. People like me. <laughs> so uh, this is just the outline because, you know, I'm, I'm a neurotic academic, so I want to tell you what's coming. I want to talk about who are these New World Africans uh, what are the tools of genetic anthropology? What are some of the major findings to date? And, and uh, it's going to be a little bit of a cliffhanger because we're in the middle of these studies. We are trying to apply um, next generation science to a database that, that um, is fairly unique. Um, I am a professor of biology, but I also am director of the Cobb Research Lab, and that is the largest collection of African-American skeletal and dental remains. And when we combine that with the New York African Burial Ground, which I also control, um, it gives us four, a window into 400 years of, of African and African-American biological history. So we have um, a thousand bodies uh, of the, from the 19th and 20th century, and these are skeletal remains. And then we have fragments of skeletal remains from the 17th and 18th century from New York. In fact, since this is NYU, this is really appropriate because this is a burial ground, one of the largest slave burial grounds in, New, in, the, in the Americas. And of course, we often think that slavery didn't exist in New York, but it did. It was a very profitable institution. And so there are thousands of people buried. And every time they do some reconstruction in lower Manhattan, they uncover additional bodies. Um, well, getting on to the talk. Who are the New World Africans? Well, we are just beginning to, to explore the range of variability in these African-descended peoples, most of whom their ancestors were brought over during the transatlantic slave trade. But they came 
They're, they're found throughout the Americas. There's a little bit of overrepresentation and overdominance of African Americans uh, from North America, um, but that's a reflection of our economic status and uh, and maybe our we're more vociferous. <laughs> but in any event, um, uh, there are African descended peoples in Cuba and in Argentina and in Brazil and in Puerto Rico and in Canada. I mean, just throughout the Americas. And they have not been studied in many uh, societies. Many of those societies, such as Mexico, they are a significant minority. Uh, at one time, they were a majority during the height of the transatlantic slave trade, but then their, their numbers have been reduced. Uh, and Many times they are very well admixed uh, and assimilated into the local populations. And in other cases, they form these enclaves where I understand that outside of Lima, Peru, there's um, a community of Afro-Peruvians. And they understand that, that they are Peruvian, but they've lost a lot of their um, cultural identification with Africa even though the genetic markers from Africa are still there. So this, I just threw in a couple of pictures, and of course, Michelle Obama is there too. <laughs> so sometimes we're at the bottom of society, and sometimes we're the first lady, you know? <laughs> okay, so New World Africans are um, a 400-year-old population, so that's not very old compared to populations in this part of the world. Um, but it it's a population that represents an amalgamation of African peoples. <clears throat> now, most of the contribution from Africa is coming from West and West Central Africa, but there's also contributions from Southeast Africa, primarily Madagascar. And um, it, it's a population that has modest, and I say modest given the time period of contact, 400 years is a, a lot of time for contact, but the gene flow has been fairly modest uh, with non-Africans. But it's only specific non-Africans, non-Africans from uh, North Atlantic and Iberian Europe. Again, the, the, the European population that is admixed with the, the New World African population depends upon the region. And then also specific Native American peoples, again, depending upon the region. So uh, in the United States, for example, the most important Native American populations for admixture are in the southeast and the east coast of the United States. Unfortunately, our database is based upon Native Americans from the southwest. So it kind of doesn't make sense. You know, we're we, we have. We have gone about this business of uh, capturing human genomic diversity as a nation and as a Western society in a very skewed way. And as a result, we cannot answer all the questions that we need to be able to answer. Well, let me just show you the map. Um, and this is, again, pointing out in, in, um, in the red lines uh, some of the, the uh, pathways that brought individuals from Africa uh, to the Americas. And only a half a million Africans came to North America. So that pretty much means that most of us in Africa, in North America, probably are more closely related to each other than we think, uh, because it's a, it's a st small starter population. 
and we can contrast that to the Africans brought to the Caribbean, 4.5 million. That's a lot of people. Um, and um, we can compare that with the numbers of people coming from Europe. And altogether, it's about 12 million Africans brought to the Americas compared to a little over a million people coming from Europe to the Americas. So even initial population sizes can influence the demogra subsequent demographic spread. And then differential fitness. And so the, the real impact of, of um, slavery and the, the emphasis on males rather than females meant that it was very difficult for the population in the Americas of New World Africans uh, to grow. Um, given the large number of, of adults and young people that were brought over from Africa. There was what we would say a lot of wastage, a lot of people just dying or never reproducing. Well, the tools that we use in genetic anthropology, sometimes people ask me, how does this differ from the tools we use in population genetics? Um, and genetic anthropology is just population genetics plus assortative mating. You know, uh, because we assume as biologists that other species don't practice assortative mating. We're, we're so, uh, so uh, species-centric, you know. We think that we're the only ones that have feelings. We're the only ones that choose our mates and so forth. That uh, uh, the level of, of uh, selection is, is really our own and not, we don't extend it to other primates and, and certainly not to other mammals. But anyway, at this point, what we've done in genetic anthropology is use the common tools of mutation and gene flow and genetic drift and recombination, and then we've added to that assortative mating. And assortative mating ends up being a powerful tool for directional selection in um, human populations. And then we also have various computer-based bioinformatic and biostatistical programs that are able to track uh, genetic diversity in individuals and groups. And some of these, I put them in capital letters like structure or admixture, and there, there are many such tools. They all have limitations. So, for example, with structure, you have to say in advance how many groups you think there are, then you subject the genetic diversity to the statistical, the software tool, and then you get a stratification on how groups are aligned. And depending upon how many groups you select, you can get some fine-tuning of the uh, genetic diversity. Uh, we also use principal component analysis and uh, genetic distance studies and so forth. And I'm going to give you some examples of those, as well as talk about the ethnographic and historical records that we can include when we do genetic anthropology. And genetic anthropology is morphing into genomic anthropology. You understand that, that the genome, genome is the entirety of the genetic information. So not just individual genes, which can give you kind of a distorted picture because some of these individual genes are under selection and so they'll, they'll match populations that actually are not so closely linked. But the whole genome, and you take the entirety of the genetic information, that's called the genome. And that uh, genomic anthropology is very powerful, but we have to have computers to help us because our brains can't really handle all that information. <laughs> they say, if you, if you really want to screw things up badly, get a computer, you know? <laughs> well, uh, 
this the the uh, new new world African uh, population is like many populations in the America a heavily admixed population. Um, well, we're admixed with, as I said before, Iberian and North American, uh, excuse Iberian and North Atlantic European populations, as well as as various Native American populations. But the greatest admixture is also among African groups, because the one thing about the historical experience of these New World Africans is that the the tribal and regional designations that were important in Africa ceased to be important after some time in the Americas. In fact, one of your colleagues at NYU, and one of my favorite historians, Michael Gomez, has written extensively about this and, and very persuasively um, in a book called um, Exchanging Our Country Marks. And then he's, he's also written, recently sent me a book, African Dominion, which is about what was going on just before the onset of the transatlantic slave trade and the African empires. And of course, this was a time when Mansu Musa made the pilgrimage to Hajj and gave away so much gold that he depressed the price of gold. And, you know, those were high points in West African history. But the slave trade was really a low point because it was a time of lots of wars between groups and um, lots of uh, localized jihads and all kinds of confusion going on, which was then exploited by the opportunity to make a a little bit of money or gain a few more resources by selling your neighbor. Um, in fact, I can't look at umbrellas the same way because, you know, one umbrella would fetch three adult males during the slave trade. And you think, an umbrella? Really? <laughs> anyway, people are brought over during what's called the Middle Passage. That's the, the ship passage across the Atlantic. And... Um, by the time they get to the Americas, those that survive, um, they are uh, relegated to work together irrespective of African tribal origins. So that laid the template for gene flow between different African populations. And Dr. Gomez has, has written that uh, um, in places where the people were mainly of Igbo descent, where the women were of Igbo descent, from southeastern Nigeria, what is now southeastern Nigeria, um, they were more receptive to um, um, reproduction with other Africans. But the women who were from Senegal, the Wolof women, uh, really wanted to marry other Muslims. But it was a very constricted environment with fewer women than males, and many males which must have been tragic. Many males realized that as enslaved people, they had no opportunity to ever marry or ever reproduce. So we're, we're starting off with a skewed demographic situation, which, which then takes that half a million Africans that made it to North America and reduces it further to probably about 300,000. Africans that were actually reproducing and laying the, the hereditary foundation for the North American uh, New World Africans. 
Now, if we use um, admixture mapping, and this is running the data on genomic variation on this program called admixture, um, we can signify the number of groups, which is K, and the more groups we have, the more separation we have between populations, and presumably the more refined it is. But um, I don't know if you can, you probably can't see this. Yeah, this is not going to enlarge. But if you have a, a K equals three, then you really just break down your entire, this is a world population, into three groups. If you increase the K to six, you get more groups. So you guys understand what I'm talking about? The initial, the initials, uh, if you say, I think that there are 12 different groups of different types of people out there. And if you then subject the world genetic data to, or genomic data to those 12 groups, that's what you'll get is 12 groups, but they may not be true. In fact, the more groups we bring in, uh, the more confusing it becomes for New World Africans to where they fit. And the reason is that we have such a poor reference database for Africa. So we don't even know what we're looking for in Africa. You know, some of you have had maybe your DNA sequenced by 23andMe or, or some of the other commercial companies, and they have great databases for Europe. For, for Middle East, not so much. For Africa, very poor, you know. And, well, this is what you'll get when, when we get, say, 23andMe data. So here in this case, in the top circle, that what they did was they just took one of those lines and then wrapped it around, okay? So that's their contribution to things. So they used structure to produce these, and the, they looking at the world as of 500 years ago. So that's another problem with our genomic studies. We tend to think of the world as having been static 500 years ago. But things were going, the party was gone in place, just not so much in, in our part of the world, in the Western part of the world. But in other parts of the world, there was trade going on, you know, uh, Chinese fleets were going to South America, they were going to East Africa, uh, there was gene flow between populations, the Middle East had always been an active area of gene flow and cultural exchange. Uh, so our models are themselves a bit biased because they reflect a, a, a Western, very Eurocentric view of the world as static before 1492. So 1492 in the West is seen as a big number. This, you know, 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. <laughs> when he discovered America, uh, to the chagrin of the people who were already there, who said, we discovered this. <laughs> You're just a visitor and go home. <laughs> but he liked it. <laughs> and he was looking for gold. Well, um, if when we get this kind of testing, I'll, I want to point out the second circle. That's an individual who is half, uh, half of his ancestry is from Belize and the other half from Lebanon. And you can see that he's really got quite a mixture of, um, of genes. I mean, there's, there's the red area that represents Africa, the blue area that represents genes that are more commonly found in Europe, and um, this purple area, which is genes from the Middle East. I guess that's the Lebanese component. So that would suggest, since he's not 50-50 Belizean and Lebanese, 
that the admixture is even deeper, that his parents were also admixed. In fact, admixture seems to be the norm for our species. I know you had um, my colleague Spencer Wells come and speak to you, and I hope that he talked about the introgression of archaic archaic species in the human line. I don't know, did he talk about that? Neanderthals and Denisovans? Yes. Uh So um, apparently, Homo sapiens, you know, for all of our other crimes, we are at the, at the heart of it, lovers, that we encounter another people. And the first thing is, can we party? <laughs> so I think that's, that's a really refreshing idea because for a long time we thought maybe we're too violent. Maybe we're just killing each other, you know, and we are doing that. But apparently we're also exchanging genes. So that's hopeful. And so what we find, as, as Spencer probably pointed out to you, is that in Europeans, and uh, or Eurasians, as more properly stated, and of course in East Asians, we're picking up a small amount of a Neanderthal signal, and an, and it's a Neanderthal signal that we think was initially uh, uh, initially acquired in the Middle East, and then those the the offspring of those hybrid Neanderthal human mixtures, well integrated into the human population, and. Uh, so when we do your genome, we can pick up uh, a little segment of DNA uh, that is Neanderthal. And in the Melanesians, we pick up a little segment of the entire genome that is Denisovans. That seems to have been um, somewhere in Asia about 60,000 years ago, which is way before any of the ethnic groups that exist now you know, were present. Uh, But it means that when those first early humans left Africa, as they encountered archaic uh, populations, there was some limited gene flow between those populations. And then as the human populations moved into different ecosystems, they began to be transformed. And so we have a pretty good handle on um, the genetic variation outside of Africa, but a really poor understanding of the genetic variation where the mass of humans remained, which was within continental Africa. So that's, that's the big tamale that's out there that we're hoping to unravel, to make sense of. Because if we can understand the genetic diversity in Africa, we will understand so much more about all the rest of us outside of Africa. Because it's, it truly is our homeland. Uh, as I tell my students, you know, and I've been saying this for gosh, 20, 25 years, that we're all basically Africans. It's just some of us are from ancestors that left sooner rather than later, you know. Okay, so when we look at the genome-wide ancestry estimates in North America, again, we know more about North America than most of the rest of the Americas. I'm not sure that North America is emblematic of the rest of the Americas, but it gives us some insight. And... um, uh, most African Americans, these are, these are the most conservative estimates from 23andMe. In a recent publication, they said, well, uh, most the African component in most African Americans from North America uh, is about 73%. Other estimates go up to 83%, you know, about 10% more. Um, Latinos, 6.2%, but it depends on where. And Latino, like Bantu, 
is a language group. It's not a genetic group. So there is a real problem in genetics as well in confounding genetics and language. You know, I'm speaking to you in English, but as far as I know, I don't have any English ancestors. I do have some Welsh ancestors, but they would not be too happy to to be counted as English. In other words, my point is this. We speak languages and we change languages all the time, but our genetics are more resilient, more resistant to change. And so the genetics can give you hints as to what your ancestry was or what your ancestry is and when you acquired particular components. So um, depending upon the the length of the segment of DNA, if it's uh, Denisovan or Neanderthal, uh, we can know when it entered your genome. And the same thing is true with uh, European or Native American or Asian ancestry in these New World Africans. We can look at the size of the segments and because they're going to get shorter and shorter the farther back in time you go through recombination. Okay, so this is pretty interesting because here we've got European Americans who are, um, in terms of genome-wide study, they're almost 0.2% African. So this also reflects the fact that many of the Europeans, European-Americans, have recently come to North America. And in the European-Americans who have been in North America a long time, the, the proportion of African ancestry is greater. Just like the longer Africans have been in the Americas, the proportion of non-African genes is higher. Okay, so history has this way. This is why I say we are essentially a species of lovers. But history has a way of bringing us together the longer we're in interaction, the longer the interaction time. Um, Okay, so we have also been looking at some of the environmental sources of what we call genotype-phenotype discontinuity. That is, you look at the genes and you think that you're going to get one phenotype, but when you look at the person, you see a different phenotype. So we're finding that a lot, especially with some of the the first and second generation West Africans who are coming to North America. Um, they we, we're, we're able to distinguish them genetically or genomically from the legacy African Americans, that is those who came as a result of slavery and have been in the country for 400 years. But when you look at them, you can't see the difference. So the, the Africans look very similar to the African Americans, but not genomically. Phenotypically, they look very similar. So what are some of the sources of this discontinuity? Well, um, I've put some down here, which I hope you can read, but the idea is that you've got the genome and then as it passes through these layers, it, it is transformed so that the expressed genotype, which is the phenotype, is a reflection of all the other non-genetic factors that can influence how you look, how tall you are, you know, the, the undertones in your skin, uh, the, your uh, susceptibility to various diseases, things like diet, and subsistence and occupation, you know, can have a big impact on the final phenotype. And toxicants, 
or humidity, radiation, uh, precipitation, infectious disease exposure. And this is why something like malaria can transform the phenotypes of many populations around the world, even though those populations are not directly connected because malaria as a non-genetic factor is so profound. Um, bioactive phytochemicals, which is something that I've studied extensively. I'm really interested in that. I was interested in it when there was no money in it, you know. Now there's big money in it, and I can hardly get my foot back in the door. Um, even things like ethnic identity and socialization and class structure, because all of these things uh, uh, teach us, you know, how to how to walk, for example. You, you all, we we're say we're the only species that learns how to walk twice. You learn as a child, right? And then you learn how to walk like a man or a woman, you know? Or you learn how to, how to, how to walk as a member of your particular culture, you know? So that is all part of the phenotype. And uh, we think that these factors um, create filters that modify the coded genotype, so that the phenotype uh, is transformed, even ever so slightly. And now we've begun to look at the epigenome. Are you all familiar with the epigenome? Okay, so the epigenome, are, these are chemical markers that are in association with particular genes. And they, the presence of these chemical markers, like mental patterns, will influence gene expression patterns. Okay, so that in itself is pretty exciting. But then in addition, it looks like these chemical markers, the epigenome, can be inherited. And at least for four generations. So for somebody as old as I am, I'm probably still carrying some markers that were from my great, great, great grandparents who were enslaved which is kind of scary, except I'm here and I'm winning. So, <laughs> so you know, if you, if you survive, that's, that's half the battle for, for humans. Um, we've begun looking at the epigenome uh, and changes in the epigenome, and it looks like when you change your diet, you can change the chemical markers, which you can then change genome expression patterns. And I saw an advertisement um, in a UAE newspaper just just today, I think I saw it. And they said, eat natural foods, you know, and there was, I didn't understand the pricing structure, but there were blueberries and uh, salmon and all, broccoli and all kinds of foods that are rich in phytonutrients that are presumed to be beneficial. So they've got you guys eating those too <laughs> and paying a lot of money, I'm sure, for them. But but the assumption is that we can change our epigenome, we can change the expression pattern of our genes through these non-genetic uh, factors. And so those go into the identification of a population, not just the genes, but also the environmental factors. So we took all of this together and tried to produce something called ethnogenetic layering. And what it is, is just simply a tool to understand the role of population substructure, population subdivision, and to identify the biological, cultural, and biocultural risk that underlie health disparities. Um, when you talk about genetic variation in the United States, because of our past legacy, very poor legacy of, of discrimination 
and bias, you almost have to talk about health disparities because health disparities then take, it kind of legitimatizes your study of diversity. If you just say, I'm going to study diversity, people are like, why? Do you want to do something bad? You know, so that's been the history. And so in order to get beyond that, we say, well, let's look at the, at the differences as a way of understanding the variation in health, health outcomes. And um, this is a computational model that uh, we think that it will help us sort through the complexity of our past and provide roadmaps for the future. And this is very important in heterogeneous admixed populations because they're not so uniform. This is not like Korea or Japan where a large proportion of the population is homogeneous. What we have with New World Africans is that they are embedded in populations where they're just one of many types of people, and they themselves reflect the the gene flow between these different groups, and sorting it all out is a little bit difficult. So I'm going to show you a cartoon of the the, uh, ethnogenetic layering as it's been applied to ancestry in three areas in the United States, and which I think you'll be excited about. But first, I have to show you this slide. So this is the general methods that we use. And um, we use something called Geographical Information Systems, GIS. And this allows us to layer the diversity and then sample through the layers. Okay. Um, I'll give you some examples. So we layer, we collect and digitize the anthropological pressures, and we create a geographic maps. And then we layer the layer these maps, and they're called raster and vector maps in GIS. And they're whatever you're interested in. Maybe you want to look at the uh, the the uh, amount of microbial infection and the ethnicity and. Uh, viral infection in one geographical area. So you hold geographical area constant and then layer all the information that you need on the population and then sample through the layers. Um, I'm trying to think of an analogy for you. Oh, so cake. You know how when you have a cake and when you're looking at it on the outside, you don't know how many layers there are. But as soon as you cut it and open it up, then you say, oh, there's five layers of cake here. So That's the kind of layering that we're talking about. And um, we integrate the uh, ethnogenetic and other data, and the data can be anthropological variables or could be residential history, could be uh, genetic ancestry data, uh, dietary patterns, clinical details, environmental toxin exposure. In other words, all that environmental data plus the genomic and genetic data, we can combine it together as we assess a population, okay? And then we calculate the metadata analysis for hypothesis testing, which is, of course, what we love to do. So this is an example of the ethnogenetic layering as applied to three groups in the United States, and it's only looking at ancestry. I didn't, for simplicity, I didn't include in here things about toxin exposure and disease and so forth. So here we have the uh, various Native American groups that were resident two, 300 years ago, okay? Now I'm going to layer on top of that the Europeans. So Europeans show up, but the Europeans show up in the Americas um, not as white people, 
are not even as Europeans, but they show up as members of different tribes. Um, so in uh, uh, Chesapeake Bay, um, the, 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 it was a Chesapeake Bay, well, Maryland was a Catholic colony. So you get a lot of Ulster English and Scotch-Irish and uh, Catholics preferentially coming. And then in uh, Louisiana, in Mississippi Delta, um, we're getting a lot of Arcadia French and French and Spanish. Um, and then this is, these are the groups, a large group of, of diverse Europeans coming to Carolina coast. So these are three regions that I had chosen because they were major ports. And so people, you know, were coming there by ships and then settling. And they, they become uh, sites of settlement or catchment areas for uh, the popula population of the eastern United States. Uh, and then we have the Africans that were brought. And this is pretty interesting because uh, in the Carolina coast, most of the Africans came from the Bite of Bonnie. So the Bite of Bonnie is southeastern Nigeria, where a lot of Igbo-speaking people came. And uh, then in the Carolina coast, the proportions were different. The Bite of Bonnie was a much smaller influence. A great bulk came from West Central Africa. And in West Central Africa, that's Angola and Congo, the people were already knew rice cultivation. So uh, we, we think of enslavement as being kind of just opportunistic. Like you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And some of it was that way. But sometimes what we find in the literature is that the slave owners were saying, I need to cultivate rice. Bring me some rice cultivators. You know, I need to control these alligators. I don't even understand these alligators because I'm from Europe. So bring some people who understand crocodiles and they'll transfer those skills to maintain, containing the alligators. And then when we look at uh, Louisiana, I don't know if you all have had a chance to come to the U.S., but the U.S. is highly diverse, you know, as, just as, as a, a section of the Americas. It's a really diverse place. And in New Orleans, it's one of the few places outside of New York where you can still find people who are practicing voodoo, the voodoo religion. And so there are some shops in New Orleans where you can go in and, and get a doll made to look like your boss, and then you can stick pins in the doll. <laughs> I'm told. I've never done that. <laughs> but that's a leftover from the large proportion of people from um, the, uh, bite of, of, um, the Bite of Benin who, came, who were brought into the port in, in Mississippi Delta. So this is the substructure I've been talking about. You know, when you have different origins for people, then you have the potential for substructure. The reason for substructure is probably very paleolithic. That is, even though we have these modern bodies, our brains are still in the paleolithic period. That is, we still can only handle about 50 to 100 people to know intimately. You know, all of you who have Facebook accounts, and you think you have 300 friends, they're not your friends. Don't ask them for anything important. You know, you don't, they don't know you really, and you don't know them. And if you tried to, you probably couldn't handle all that information. We can know about 50 to 100 people intimately, you know, where we know their names and we know all about them. And, and usually in the past, those 50 to 100 people have been our relatives because we lived in small hunter-gatherer communities. Uh, 
And this uh, industrial and now post-industrial uh, homo sapiens that we've got is a brand new thing. And that I don't know if we're going to get through this. <laughs> Some have said agriculture was the worst mistake we ever made. And I don't know. But in any event, we've got, we were laying, we're building everything on a foundation of um, hunter-gatherer brains and hunter-gatherer societies. And then we're trying to, we're stretching the envelope, you know, to accommodate this new existence. Uh, but we're doing it with some problems, and some of the health disparities are a reflection of our inability to adapt to this new life. I'm talking about humans as a species. Okay, now, in each of these areas, we can look at a combination of the interactions of, of genes and culture and the environment. And it's almost like a, a, a pie chart with the with the interactions here or a Venn diagram. We can do that for the Mississippi Delta region. Uh, we can do that for the um, Co Carolina coast region. And we can do that for the Chesapeake Bay region. So those were the three regions that I studied in some detail in order to get a handle on substructure. Now, substructure is everywhere, but we have a tendency in our language to aggregate people together. So we say things like, the Arab peoples. Like, who's that? You know, because who, who identifies as Arab may genetically and genomically differ from, from Morocco all the way, you know, to Oman. There may be significant differences. But for political reasons, I understand, we kind of group people together. But in fact, it's a linguistic category. So um, yesterday, last night at the, at the uh, airport, um, I was asking, how do I get to the university? And they said, they told me to speak in Arabic. I'm thinking, uh-oh, now we're really in trouble here. <laughs> so I brought out my rudimentary Arabic. And I thought for a moment, is he just joking with me or is he confused? Does he think maybe, you know, for a long time I lived in, a little while I lived in Kuwait and I was trying to get adopted. I said, Ana Kuwaitia. But they weren't buying it, you know. <laughs> they said, no, you're an American. I said, no, they weren't buying it. <laughs> but I thought, you know, the fact is, is that we are very similar as human beings. And um, we, these, the differences among various groups of human beings, as I'm sure Spencer Wells told you, is not enough to make us different races, biological races. Um, all the differences that exist are below the subspecies level, not even below the species level, below the subspecies level. So that means if a Martian uh, uh, and a living person from Mars could come and see us, they'd have a hard time distinguishing us. Uh, I'm waiting for that day to come for us too, as Homo sapiens, where we are looking at something other than the superficial characters and maybe trying to look at the kind of person we are, the character we are, the, the values that we display, and using that as a basis for feeling affinity. But I'm a dreamer. <laughs> I'm a dreamer. I think, I think it's possible, though. Well, let me tell you about the genetic findings we found so far. What we found is that African-American African-African admixtures dominate admixture profiles. And what do I mean? When you look at the literature, you think that the most important admixture in African-Americans was with European-Americans. 
And this is a little hard for us to, to, to accept um, because most of that gene flow from Europe and uh, European Americans into the New World African gene pool, most of that gene flow was precipitated by slavery. So in slavery, you have an unequal balance of power. So if I'm the owner and you're the slave, I tell you what to do. And if you're the owner and I'm the slave, you tell me what to do. And so the sexual politics of slavery created a gender-based pattern of gene flow into the New World African population in general and the African-American population specifically. So we pick up many more genomic variants that are tied to uh, the Y chromosome in African-Americans than to the X chromosome. You guys understand what I'm saying? Okay. Um, so the, so whenever it was brought up in the literature, and it was frequently brought up in the literature, of European admixture into African-descended populations, it kind of stung a little bit, like a little mosquito bite. That's what it felt like, because it was a reminder of the rape that had occurred and the, the, the imbalance that had occurred. But, you know, when you do genetics, you kind of have to step back from the politics and a little bit from the history and try to take a clear view and a dispassionate view towards even things that um, are hurtful. So as we looked at the admixture, we realized, wait a minute, the greatest diversity in humans is in the homeland of the species. Where is the homeland of the species? Africa. So this is... This is a, a, a basic biological principle. Wherever a species has emerged, you're more likely to find the greatest genetic diversity because genetic diversity, we're just talking about accumulated mutations. It's like a fancy name for accumulated mutations. So where have mutations accumulated the most? Where the people have been hanging around the longest, which is continental Africa. So the diversity that we see in New World Africans, the most profound admixture variation is African-African. And again, my, uh, your uh, faculty member, uh, Mike Gomez, and my colleague uh, has written about this and how in the early days of, of um, uh, slavery in the Americas, people did identify with the, the tribe that brought them over. But at some point, maybe one or two generations into existence, African tribe just wasn't that important. You were going to get the beat down, whether you were Igbo, Yoruba, Hausa, Fulani, you know, you are still a slave. So people then began to coalesce around that. And, and the tribal identity was so important initially that the slave revolts, which started on in the continent in Africa, continued during the Middle Passage and then intensified once people got to the Americas. Initially, the slave revolts were by tribe. But, you know, tribalism, tribalism is kind of problematic when you're being oppressed not because of your tribe but because of, of your colors, certain phenotypic features, you know. Um, because the Mandingo, one tribe in Africa, would say, we're going to revolt. And then another group would say, we're not going to participate in that because that's a Mandingo thing, you know. 
But we, we humans seem to find all kinds of ways to divide ourselves. After a while, it dawned on the people that maybe this African identity wasn't so important. And then we start to see much more gene flow between the different African groups uh, in the Americas. So that's the basis for the African-African admixtures. And again, until we have a, a solid idea of the, me- the range of diversity in Africa, it's going to be hard to tease all that out. Most of us, if, when we get a, a 20, 23andMe or other g- commercial genomics test, it will just say, mm, you're 80% West African. But what West African? You know? So it's not the level of specificity that we have for Europe. But that's the goal, is to get that specificity. We also see regional variation in the proportion of Africans brought to specific areas of Africa, uh, of the, from, from specific areas of continental Africa. And that's what I showed you with the ethnogenetic layering. You know, in Chesapeake Bay, which is near Washington, D.C., near Baltimore, that, uh, if, if you read Alex Haley's book, you know, uh, Roots, his, his ancestors were brought there. Um, and uh, most of those people were from, or a large portion were from southeastern Nigeria. And apparently, many of the people coming to the Carolinas were also, excuse me, to the Caribbean, were also from southeastern uh, Nigeria, the, these Igbo-related people. And then uh, in uh, uh, Louisiana, a large proportion of people uh, came from um, the Bight of Benin, which is Yoruba and Benin, and this is where the people were practicing Vodun religions and also other Western, excuse me, West African traditional religions. An interesting case of this is um, in Brazil, where among the Afro-Brazilians, uh, th- uh, there were many Muslims who were brought from Senegal to uh, Brazil. But they uh, rebelled, and they went up to the northeastern part of Brazil and for 90 years had their own uh, little village and and their own system. But um, then the Portuguese-mounted a mercenary army went in, killed them off, um, and the other Africans who survived took on the Yoruba religion. So if you go to Brazil now, all of the many people are saying, oh, yeah, we're Yoruba, we're Yoruba. But they're not really Yoruba. When you test them genetically, they cluster with Senegalese. <laughs> so this is how, how fragile culture is. Culture can change, you know, and especially if there's a war. If there's a war going on, I'll be whatever, wherever you want me to be from. That's where I'm from. <laughs> Um, African mitochondrial DNA variation in the Americas is different than anticipated. There's a shift in frequencies, probably due to historic and cultural events. So African mitochondrial variation, the mitochondria in Africa, the haplotypes are mostly L, with a little bit of M and N showing up, either as a result of back migration or those were the starting points for M and N. I should have brought a picture of mitochondrial diversity uh, because there's a nice picture on the internet that, that really lets you understand that the great bulk of mitochondrial diversity is in Africa. And then everything that you see outside of Africa, well, it's a subset of African diversity. It's just amazing to me because, to me, it brings us all closer together, you know? Um, the, in in um, uh, Europe, you're picking up these variants of N, which is a subset of L3. And in 
uh, Asia and in Australia, you're picking up M and variants of M, which is a subset of L3. So I'm actually L3. So I feel like I'm the mother of everybody. But there's actually somebody older than us. You know, there's, there's L0. There's the most common recent ancestor. So L0, L1, L2, these are all older than L3. But uh, you can see there's been this series of progression, progressive mutations as we move from Africa and then out of Africa into other parts of the world. Um, and indeed, at the genomic level, all non-African diversity is a subset of African diversity. But we just need to understand the African diversity because we don't have a good handle on that yet. Um, New World African mitochondrial variation is a subset of African diversity because of the small number, relatively small number of females that came, um, but almost every female that came, if, if she could reproduce in the Americas, she, she was reproducing. So we get the elaboration of these models. The African Y chromosome, which is, of course, paternally inherited, uh, the variants are significantly reduced for all the reasons I gave you. That is, there were many young men who never had a chance to reproduce. So they never could pass on their genes. But, um, and then there is the sex skew demographics and gene flow effects where um, about 30 to maybe 40% of New World Africans have Y chromosome variants that are more commonly found in Europe, in North Atlantic Europe, okay? So I have to tell you something just as a quick aside. It's a, it's a story about growth. Okay, I'm a woman, so, and I have four sons, but I don't, still don't understand what it means to be a man. I, I don't really understand. So, I mean, I'm, I'm sensitive to men, and I like men, but, and I love my husband, but I don't understand why he was so upset. He's African-American. Why was he so upset when we did his Y chromosome testing and he matched with someone in Scandinavia? And he said, oh, hell no. And I said, no, no, it's okay. It's all right. I didn't understand that for a man, your Y chromosome status is kind of a big deal. You know, I didn't feel that way about my mitochondrial DNA. Like it didn't, didn't change my estrogen levels, didn't make me more of a or less of a woman. But apparently for men, this like, who's your daddy question <laughs> is a big question, you know. So, you know, the way that I placated him was I told him some more scientific. Because, look, the cure for scientific anxiety is more science. Not less science, more science. This is why we all have to stay on the case and keep producing and generating more science because I really believe that the science can begin to heal the rifts and the misunderstandings in the world. So as I talk to him about, um, he happens to be haplotype I. So he's resolved this. He didn't mind that I'm talking about it. This is not a breach of confidentiality. Anyway, I already blurted it out. So, so there it is. So he's like this haplotype I, which is really common in Scotland and looks like it came with the Vikings to, to Great Britain. So it happened at that time that one of my older daughters was married to a Danish man who really did look Viking. And, but, you know, so no one really wanted to identify with him that way. We just wanted, we had him as a son-in-law, so we weren't biased against him. But you just when it's your own DNA, 
you want it, you know, you want it to match with like Ramses II or something, or <laughs> Cleopatra, you know, somebody important, so you can hold your head up. Well, here he was matched to some anonymous uh, biking descended person, and I said to him, "Yeah, but get this: eight thousand years ago, the uh, the people of uh, Northern Europe uh, were brown." So that did it because, and that made it, that resolved it for him. He said, oh, so this variant that I have, which emerged 23,000 years ago, probably emerged in a brown or black man. I said, yes. <laughs> but now that, now it's predominant in people who are less pigmented in terms of epidermal melanin. But remember, its origins were in a brown or black man. So that seemed to calm him down. And now he proudly talks about it. Yes, I have I. So what? I'm still a man. I'm still African-American. You know, and, and then he did some ancestry testing and found out that, that in fact, his, um, his, his paternal line, they had been freed. So they lived while other Africans in Virginia were enslaved, but they were free and, and owned a house. It's like a, the house that they paid $1,000 for, which back in those days was a lot of money. I mean, we're talking about 1810. So, you know, our ancestries are circuitous and interwoven. And that's the beauty of the research. Because the more work that's done, the more we study about ourselves, the more we find ourselves connected to other people. Um, there's a potential we found in the uh, genetics for isolated pockets of rare and very old variants. And uh, I call to mind here the Y chromosome finding in a, an African-American man from South Carolina. And South Carolina is an interesting place for a lot of reasons. But one is that it, its geography has lots of inlets like Louisiana. And so people can hide out there and they can avoid admixture with other people. They can remain fairly endogamous. And so um, uh, in South Carolina, a man, an African-American man was found to have a Y chromosome variant that was dated at 350,000 years old. Wait a minute. 350,000 years old for a Y chromosome variant. That's before the emergence of anatomically modern humans. It just, when I first heard it, it gave me shivers. And even when I think about it now, that's right around the time that the Homo sapiens line was diverging from the Neanderthal line. And then they did some research and found a group in Cameroon, the Mbo people, who apparently also have that same variant. It's the oldest Y chromosome lineage. They named it A00. But what was so interesting about it is that that was one of the archaic elements that survived the transatlantic slave trade and ended up in the New World, a New World African individual, even though it's very rare in Africa now. So we find these isolated pockets, and we're hoping through a project I'm going to talk to you about called the Thousand African Diaspora Genomes Project. It's kind of a mouthful, but it, it, that, what we hope to do is capture a thousand genomes, whole genomes, whole exomes of 
African diaspora populations throughout the Americas in hopes of finding some of these old variants and really elucidating what's the pattern of variation that we see in the Americas. What's the impact? Because we have the historical record and we know the European and the Native American populations in Peru, in Argentina, in Colombia, in Chile, in New York City that are relevant. Few more genetic findings. Um, these are these geographical isolates. Uh, the geographical isolates, which is the substructure that I've identified, um, there it's a, a curvilinear relationship. It seems as though they either have very high African levels, levels of African genomic diversity. That is, they 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 did not admix very much with the people around them. Uh, you may have read a, a paper uh, by. Um, our colleague um, Hannes Schroeder from University of Copenhagen, he was looking at the, the Nord-Maroon Nor population in the Caribbean. And they um, were one of the maroon populations. They ran away from slavery, managed to, main, to not be re-enslaved, and they, they really closed their borders, even to other black people. So they traded with Native Americans they traded with Europeans, but they didn't practice gene flow. So when you check them, when you look them at them genetically or genomically, you find all of these markers that uh, are still reflective of an African ancestry. And you actually can take them back to particular villages in Ghana, which is kind of interesting. And they're still smelting gold and making gold earrings. And, you, and, they, and the designs are like the designs that you see in Ghana. <laughs> but... Um, that's, you either see that pattern or you see very high non-African admixtures, like in the uh, Garifuna people of um, Belize, which is also in Central, Central um, America. Um, and the Belize has a, a population of Africans who quickly, during slavery, ran away from slavery and admixed with the Native American population the Garifuna, and then they became Garifuna because now they speak a language that is a Native American language, but when you look at them, they look like me. Of course, I think everybody looks like me. <laughs> That's just through my eyes. All of you all are my relatives, you know? I'll soon come to ask for a loan. No, <laughs> just kidding. Okay, there are strong genetic links between African descend descendant populations and specific source populations in Africa and um, on the basis of haplotype sharing patterns. And so it looks like even though uh, uh, we, we in the North America like to imagine that, you know, we're Nubian or we're related to uh, uh, Ramses and as Cleopatra, I told you, and Nefertari is you know, my cousin, you know. Uh, although we have that mythology, the fact is we're mostly from West and West Central African farmers, you know. In fact, almost all of us are from agriculturalists wherever we're from. Very few of us from royalty, which is probably a good thing because um, it's good to have skills. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> That's my democratic uh, part coming out. Um, Non-African gene flow is historically defined and limited to North Atlantic and Iberian Europeans and geographically specific Native American groups. So uh, actually I made this point before, but the, the, the emphasis that I'm saying is, is that 
we know the, the specific groups of Europeans that admixed with our African ancestors in the past. And actually, because there's more information on those European ancestors, because remember, the Africans were like property. So if their names were even recorded, that's a huge deal. Many times there weren't, weren't even names recorded in the census. So, um, <clears throat> but the Europeans, actually, the more admixed you are, the more you can find out about your history. Um, and, uh, but they're, they're fairly limited, the, the Europeans that, that the, in terms of the regions that the Europeans came from. So um, that reflects the colonialization pattern. So just as in European history, uh, New World African history reflects the history of, uh, the, the genomics reflects the history of the, pop, of the region. And, and that's a good thing. I mean, that means that we can have confidence in history, and it helps to sort out the actual history from the contrived history, you know. <laughs> or we'd say the fake history, the fake news. <laughs> uh, but I promise I wouldn't make digs at our president, so I'll leave that alone. <laughs> He's always talking about fake history and fake news. Anyway, um, these are the future studies that we need done. And um, I, I want to talk about what we need to do and then what we're doing and then how we're doing it as the, the, to wrap up this lecture. Um, we need more local studies of New World African genetic diversity and genomic diversity because we don't really know who we are. What's something very interesting that I find in the literature is that most of the, of the research being done on African-American and New World African genomic diversity is being done by people who aren't from that community. So, for example, there was a big study done by um, our friend uh, Carlos Bustamante, was the senior author out of Stanford, and he's a great guy. But, you know, he said, oh, we've discovered the path of the Great Migration. That is when people in the South, uh, after Reconstruction, after slavery was over and the, the period of Reconstruction was over, then people had to leave and, and move to the North. And so we know these. This is part of our lore. This is part of our history. But he said, we've discovered it. <laughs> so it was new for him. But like for us, we're like, ha, ha, ha. You know, can you tell us something new, something we want to know? And again, Local studies of New World African genetic diversity are very much needed because the story is not the same. And I began realizing as well that there's something about this thing called substructure. You know, we are able to see substructure in ourselves, but it's hard to see it in the other. And I wondered, why is that? Until a, uh, a, one of my students um, just late earlier this month, he was doing a project uh, on... Um, uh, genetic diversity in salmon populations, the fish, salmon. And, and, and so someone asked him, why is that important? He said, oh, well, if we recognize that there's diversity, then we're less likely to substitute one species of salmon for another, oops, for another. And, and we're more likely to protect what exists. Protecting what exists is an outcome of recognizing diversity, okay? So if I say, oh, all the Arab peoples are one, there's no difference. Palestinians, eh. Lebanese, eh. Saudis, eh. They can, all, they can all interchange. It's like, no, they can't. There's something unique that Palestinians bring that Omanis don't bring. That Omanis bring something else different. See, see that's substructure. And so recognizing the substructure then inclines us more to preserve it. 
because variation, both cultural and biological, is our species' only buffer against extinction. Already, we're on the path to extinction. How do I know? Because two million years ago, there were at least four or five different types of humans around. Now there's only one. We're polytypic. That is, we have different colors and different hair shapes, different eye shapes. But underneath all that, we're the same tropical African. Yes, indeed. So that's, that's good material for extinction. So we want to maintain as much diversity as we can as a buffer against extinction. Guys? And I saw we had this conference uh, earlier today and I guess tomorrow on robotics. And um, so I love robots, robots and I love artificial intelligence, but I don't want it telling me what to do. I'm afraid that it will soon surpass my own intelligence. So that worries me. <laughs> we have to maintain our own in- diversity. That's also a buffer against being overcome by um, robots made in Korea. <laughs> I'm just saying, be careful of the artificial intelligence because it's, it's important that we maintain a dominance. Otherwise, we can be subject to it. And our diversity provides that kind of buffer, just as our diversity provides a buffer against infectious diseases like Ebola or like HIV. We need more interdisciplinary teams to test more sophisticated hypotheses about the African diaspora. And by interdisciplinary teams, I mean teams that are not simply geneticists, but also include historians and psychologists and geographers. All of these people need to work together to to really uh, develop uh, sophisticated hypotheses that really get to the heart of the issue in the African diaspora as well as in continental Africa. Um, I've cited the work of uh, historian Mike Gomez, but there are many others as well that I try to read so that I'm not your typical uh, geneticist who says when they want to go to Africa, they turn around to the refrigerator and open the door, you know, and they have a sample from Africa, but they don't know who is it from? What were their life conditions? Uh, Is this really from Uganda? You know, (laughs) Um, We need greater standardization of the genetic and genomic nomenclature for African-descended groups across the Americas. You know, nomenclature is very political, very political, what we name genes. And what we're finding is that throughout the, the diaspora, the transatlantic diaspora, among New World Africans, the same gene that shows up in uh, Afro-Caribbeans will be given a different name than that gene when it shows up in African Americans. I, I don't know why. I, it can't simply be the ego of the researchers. I think that in the minds of many, they really are not seeing the connections among the various African diaspora groups. Um, As I said before, more studies need to be done on this intra-African gene flow in Africa and also in the Americas. Uh, We have, and myself included, when we started working on the New York African Burial Ground, which is 17th and 18th century Africans, and we started doing the genetics uh, back in 1994-95, 
And, you know, our tools were not very specific. They were not very good. But we had, worse than our tools was our attitude. We had the attitude that somehow Africa was static. That whatever had happened 400 years ago, the people were still there in the same spot. And that's a real liability. It's, it's a, a non-evolutionary view because, in fact, we're all evolving. So the, the, the contemporary Nigerians are not the same as the Nigerian, the people we would call Nigerian 400 years ago. In fact, there was no Nigeria 400 years ago. So, so uh, that understanding uh, historical sophistication, understanding population biology in a more sophisticated way is actually very important. And we need more research on the non-genetic influences on gene expression, and that was the filtering um, uh, graphic that I showed you. That is, we need to, to understand what is the impact of eating uh, cassava, manioc esculenta, day after day after day. That's one of my favorite crops, not for eating, but for research, because it's a crop that contains um, high levels of cyanide. Of course, it's not the only thing that contains cyanide. This afternoon, I had lunch, that, um, and we had um, lentil soup. And I was thinking as I was eating the lentil soup, hmm, a little cyanide in here, too. In fact, cyanide is very common throughout the plant world. And it's a good protection against soil nematodes and so forth. Uh, but we consume it. It's just that the size of our bodies protects us from the toxicity. But there is an impact. And, of course, you know, uh, as the dean pointed out, that was the, my first research was really looking at the impact of these phytochemicals on metabolic biology. What you eat has an impact, you know, which is why the, somebody's going to great lengths to bring organic blueberries into UAE. We, this is what we're doing. So it's easy to talk about what needs to be done. Now I, I need to tell you what we're doing. We're doing mathematical and ecological modeling of African genetic diversity. We have a research group, and we're trying to communicate with each other. You know, there's only so far I can go with the mathematics, but I know enough to communicate and then turn it over to the mathematicians. And then I have a student who just wrote me again today. She's in St. Helena. Now, this is in the South Atlantic Ocean. It's off the coast of Angola and, um, uh, and South Africa. And it's the place where the English put uh, Napoleon as the, he was exiled to St. Helena. It's in the middle of nowhere. But it's a place also where the British, um, when they passed their... Um, uh, anti-slavery efforts, they uh, commissioned the British Navy to turn around the Portuguese and other ships that were bringing enslaved Africans to the Americas. So the, the British Navy would encounter these ships, 1830, 1840, turn the ships around and make them go to St. Hel Helena and then deposit the Africans there. Well, by that time, about 8,000 Africans died in St. Helena. But something like 32,000 Africans were brought to the island. They were subsequently repatriated to either Cape Town or to Kingston, where they became indentured servants, which I guess is a cut above being a slave. But anyway, you know, it, it happened. So there, there we have it. But the ones who died, the 8,000 who died, were buried there at St. Helena. And when St. Helena decided to build an airport, they disrupted the burials of about 300 of them. So I've got a student there now who is going to try to collect 
um, the, um, are you all familiar with the petrous bone? Have you heard of that? So the petrous bone, if you go in the inner ear, on both sides, we have a, a vascular-rich bone in the skull. And she's going to try to retrieve that because it's a great source of DNA of ancient DNA. And then we've got this collaboration with University of Copenhagen, you know, where they're, they're pulling DNA out of 40,000-year-old woolly mammoths. So pulling it out of 400-year-old people is not a big deal for them. And so we're collaborating with them to, in fact, examine the genetic diversity. For us, as a New World African, it's the missing link because these people were on their way to becoming our ancestors, but then they got turned around by the British Navy. So we want to know, well, what does their genetics look like? Because it's a real reflection of Africa in 1840, 1830. Um, We're also, I also have two Saudi students, and one of them is a doctoral student, and, and she's looking into the African presence in the Arabian Peninsula. And so I think that should be really interesting. In fact, that's the, that's the first of the African diasporas. The first diaspora was across either what is now Djibouti into Yemen, the southern route, or the northern route, go down the Nile, turn right at uh, the Suez Canal, cross over into Ashams. So that was the first diaspora of African-descended peoples out of Africa. And, and yet it's not been studied. So she's going to be looking into the African presence in two uh, Arabian Peninsula uh, tribes and see if she can pick up markers that are also found in Ethiopia or in Egypt or, or in Eritrea or, or Djibouti. We've tried to, we think that uh, we need also strategic collaborations. And I would like to, to make the invitation to any of you here at uh, NYU Abu Dhabi to, uh, if you feel like collaborating with us, please, you're welcome. You know, you're welcome to collaborate with us because um, we're trying to increase our technical capacity, but also increase the viewpoints as we analyze the data. You know, almost anyone can do the next generation sequencing. It's the interpretation of the data that is so critical, you know, and that's where we need historians, we need biologists, we need geographers, we need people who are interested in this topic and want to join with us as an, an equal partner in, in the search for the discovery of, of who we are and who we all are collectively. And we need more studies using local representatives of African-descended groups. And I, I gave you the reasons for that and that so much of the research is being done by people who, who don't understand our culture. So they are um, surprised at mundane results. And yet they could do so much more with more sophisticated hypothesis testing. And finally, I want to tell you about the three projects, and I'll ask you to please pray for us with these projects because we're trying our best to, to have a research design that will systematically capture the magnitude of genetic diversity in the Americas and then in continental Africa and then in the Red Sea, Indian Ocean, African diaspora populations. So this is probably more than 
I mean, this is longer than I'll, I'll probably be around teaching as a professor. But I'm trying to train students, and I'm also welcoming students who are interested to work on their doctoral, doctoral degrees on these topics. We partnered with Helix and Empire Genomics to uh, do a whole exome sequencing of a 1,000 transatlantic African diaspora genomes project. And that's pretty interesting because we think we can get, using something called model-based sampling, we can take the history and use that to define where people are, who they are, how many do we need to sample from each population. And uh, there's that study. Then after we finish that, go to the Thousands Continental African Genomes Project. I don't know if we can capture all of African diversity in only a thousand genomes, but you know, we'll start off with a 1,000. And then the 1,000 Red Sea, Indian Ocean, African Diaspora Genomes Project. So for the first one, we're about almost 500 people into, into it. Um, for the second one, we have about 16 people. And for the third one, we have about almost 100 people because my, my student uh, from Saudi Arabia has, has been recruiting so many people and they would come just to give uh, their saliva. Um, so that we could then pull not only the DNA, but also the microbiome from the saliva. So with that, I want to uh, close out my talk and thank you all again. And as I said, please pray for us. <laughs> You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute.